Amen. Lord, uh, we just thank you for your grace to us again. Again this morning, uh, we, we come to you in humility, Lord. We come to you trusting you uh, in all things, hoping in the promise of your word. We know that when your word uh, goes out, your spirit goes with it. And so we come to your word this morning hopeful and expectant that you're going to work in us through it. Uh, that you would lift our eyes to heaven, Lord, that we would be able to see you for who you really are, not, not a source of uh, condemnation upon us or, or as a harsh ruler who, who puts a, a, a perfect righteous demand on us that we cannot fulfill, but God is a loving and merciful Father who makes a way for us in all of our inadequacy. Help us to hear your voice through your word this morning. We pray all these things in your name. You guys can have a seat. Good morning. Thanks for being here. We're going to keep plugging along in Romans this morning. If you're good with that, start at Romans 10. So turn there with me if you would. Romans 10, we'll be looking at verses uh, 1 to 13. Romans 10, 1 to 13. Let me read this and I'll start. Start in verse 1. Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. I can testify about them that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, since they are ignorant of the righteousness of God and have attempted to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, since Moses writes about the righteousness that is from the law, saying the one who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart, who will go up to heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will go down into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. On the contrary... What does it say? The message is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. And this is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in in salvation, For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Some of you have may, uh, may, may have heard of a song. It's called Never Enough. Um, it was made popular in a movie that came out a few years ago called The Greatest Showman which was a, a, a biographical uh, musical that was a, a huge hit. Um, and there's really, there, there's a few popular songs from that movie, but none of which are as popular and influential as this song, Never Enough. Uh, this song, like all other popular songs, uh, when you really think about it, is about common themes in life that resonate uh, really with all of humanity. And, and this song in particular speaks to the deep longing for love and acceptance in the context of relationship. And it specifically speaks to feelings of no matter what you do or how many material things you get or how much status you achieve, 
It's never enough to fill the deep void inside of our hearts for love and relationship. Part of it goes like this. Um, and no, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> I know some of you want to hear that, but promise me that would uh, probably fall under what we would call pastoral malpractice, and we don't need any of that this morning. Uh, so let me just read a few of the lyrics. It goes, Take my hand, will you share this with me? Because darling, without you, all the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it will never be enough, never be enough. And these, these sentiments combined, of course, with, with good performance, it caused this song to, uh, to just blow up, reaching over 700 million views on YouTube and becoming one of the highest purchased songs on iTunes. This magnitude of popularity, of course, it was not uh, isolated to one specific age group or uh, ethnicity, demographic, culture, subculture, married, single, uh, political, right or left. It, it pierced through all of that, which in turn speaks to the fact that the sentiments raised in the song, they're also not isolated to any of those things. They're universal truths that relate to all of humanity. But it begs the question, does it not? How much or what specifically actually is enough to meet our deepest needs? All the stars in the night sky, towers of gold, even holding the world in our hands, will never be enough. And so what is it that would actually be enough to satisfy our deepest needs? And as we come to Romans 10 this morning, we see a similar predicament. The issue that Paul's been laying out since the beginning of Romans 9, really, is that despite all of the advantages of being Jewish, right, uh, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises, the, the ancestry through whom came the Messiah, they have... They have all of these things, but there's one massive problem that still exists for them. They're cut off from the Messiah. Despite everything they have and everything they've done, they are cut off from God and the blessings of his promises to them. And it begs the question, how much is enough? What more does Israel need to do? What else needs to be given to them for their greatest needs to be met? But at the same time, Romans 10 raises this question specifically for Israel. This isn't just a question for Israel, is it? It's also a question for us. One of the things that's so amazing about the Bible is that, uh, not unlike popular music, really, it, it cannot be isolated down to being only relevant for specific people in specific places at specific moments in time. And even though it was written at a particular moment in time and it involves stories about particular people, its subject matter and its message is not isolated to any of those things. And so as we come to it with the exact same question this morning, what is it that will meet my deepest needs? We need to let the Bible answer the question, not only for not lost national Israel here, but for you and me as we sit under this as well. What we'll see this morning is that when faced with this problem of Israel being cut off from God and his Messiah, Paul answers not only what they need, what would be enough, but he also tells them where to find it, and he tells them how to get it. And so these are the questions that we're going to try to answer as we walk through the text this morning. What, what is our greatest need? Where can we find our greatest need? And how can we get it? This is what we'll consider this morning. And so first, what do they need? Paul's answer to this 
is somewhat surprising in light of the question that we're asking. What he says Israel's greatest need is, and by virtue what all of our greatest need is, is righteousness. It's righteousness. And this may be a surprise when you think about it. This isn't something that really uh, dominates our thoughts or emotions. If that were the case, then I might be tempted to say what I need most is maybe a little more money, right? A little more uh, rest and relaxation, things that make me feel good. But righteousness. This is somewhat of an overly simplistic answer as Paul, uh, he, he does speak here in a way of them having righteousness, but it's the wrong kind of righteousness. And since there's really only one kind of righteousness when it comes down to it, them having the wrong kind really means they don't have, a, have, have any at all. This has not been due to a lack of trying, but the righteousness they need is not the one they've zealously pursued. It's God's righteousness. And this phrase here that he uses, God's righteousness, it is, it's, it's a bit uh, technical and it refers back to things we've already talked about in earlier parts of Romans, specifically in chapters 1 and chapter 3. Uh, in Romans 1.17, you'll remember that it was God's righteousness that was revealed in the gospel, which is his power for salvation, and it was revealed in a specific way, from faith to faith. And then in Romans 3, verses 21 and 22, uh, Paul adds to this by talking about how God's righteousness has been, been revealed not through the law, but apart from the law, through faith in Christ, who is given up on their behalf to all who believe. God's righteousness is about how he saves sinners by faith. That's what he's referring to here. And so the righteousness that they need, then, is not the one that comes through the law, but it's the one that's credited to them on the merits of Christ based on their faith in him because that's how God has chosen to save sinners. As the song goes, nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Point being, yes, God demands righteousness from us, but he gives what he demands and he demands what he gives through faith in Christ. This is the righteousness that Israel needs. Yet this is the exact thing Paul says Israel has disregarded and failed to submit to. How so? Well, as Paul puts it in verse 932, if you just look back at the end of chapter 9, he says they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. And so the righteousness that they pursued with great zeal, it's not God's righteousness to save sinners by faith. It's a false righteousness. It's a self-righteousness and has not been effective. Uh, Spurgeon explained self-righteousness this way. He said, self-righteousness exclaims, I will not be saved in God's way. I will make a new road to heaven. I will not bow before God's grace. I will not accept the atonement for which God has wrought out in the person of Jesus. I will be my own redeemer. I will enter heaven by my own strength and glorify my own merits. And oh, how often sinful men in the Bible have been described as saying this very thing with their hearts and actions, as pursuing their greatest needs through their own, their own self-sufficiencies and their own, uh, their, own, their own ability to do it, and not simply through faith in Christ. Abraham pursued it by taking Hagar, and it was ineffective. Moses pursued it by striking a rock, and it was ineffective. The Israelites have pursued it through their keeping of the law, and it was ineffective. And we find ourselves in the same position 
all of the time, do we not? Attempting to come to God on our own terms, based not on the person and work of Christ, but on our own ability to please God through our actions and our devotion to him. We begin trusting in things like homeschool or conservatism. We think we get closer to God by talking the right way, dressing the right way, listening to clean music, only watching Christian movies. God bless you if that's you. Some of those are pretty painful. (laughs) But in all of our pursuits of God by works and not simply by faith, it is all rendered ineffective. And it will never be enough for what we truly need. This reality is the very reason why our righteousness could never come from ourselves. You understand that? But rather why it must come from somewhere outside of ourselves. This is why Spurgeon concluded that nothing can damn a man but his own righteousness. And nothing can save him but the righteousness of Christ. And that's exactly what God has provided to us through our faith in the gospel. Contrary to a self-righteousness, the righteousness that God gives us comes through faith, not in the ability of man, but faith in the action of God on man's behalf. And that's because it first belongs to Christ. It's his righteousness that we're credited with when we're united to him in faith. And it's significant because it's the grounds upon which we can not only be accepted by God and brought into his people, but also the grounds upon which we receive all of the blessings of the promises of God to his people through his son, Jesus Christ, which means, hear me, which means your greatest need is not finding the perfect partner to make you happy or getting that promotion or, or the pay raise or having a lot of kids or, or more notoriety and fame. Your greatest need is simply treasuring Christ because he alone is your access to the Father and how you can be made right with him. And the great tragedy of Israel here, understand this, is that lacking the righteousness that comes through faith, they've been cut off from God and his Messiah. But when we really look at how Paul describes Israel's issue, um, it's, not, it's not that they just don't understand what their greatest need is. That's not, that's not all of the story here. It's clear that Israel actually understands they need righteousness as the grounds by which they're able to come to God. They're zealous for God, he says, and they've, they've actually pursued righteousness. But they've pursued the wrong kind, and they've pursued it in the wrong way. And the reason that that's happened is that they've misunderstood where to find it and how to get it. They have wrongly pursued righteousness through the law as if it were by works. And this is exactly what Paul goes on to address. If righteousness cannot be found in the law, then where can it be found? And if you don't get it by works, then how do you get it? The first thing that Paul tells us is that the righteousness of God can only be found not through the law of God, but only through the word of God. We've already distinguished between the righteousness that comes through the law and the righteousness of God that comes through faith. And underneath of that lies a distinction between, between the sources of both of those, the law and the Bible. Uh, self-righteousness comes inherently through the law and through the heart of the law, following what the message of the law is. But Christ's righteousness comes through faith in Christ, which is the message of the gospel and the message of God's word. This is an important distinction to make and one that can often be 
uh, easily missed as it was by the ancient Israelites. But this is what Paul alludes to in verses 6 through 8 here when he contrasts the way that the righteousness from the law speaks from the way that the righteousness from faith speaks. And he does this through the use of several Old Testament quotations out of Leviticus and Deuteronomy where he writes that Moses writes about the righteousness from the law in quotations, saying, the one who does these things will live by them. That's Leviticus 18.5, and that's, that's essentially, that's the message of the Sinai covenant, the old covenant, the law, that life can be had through keeping the law. But he says the righteousness that comes through faith speaks like this. And he begins to quote Deuteronomy 30. Do not say in your heart, who will go up to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will go down into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. On the contrary, what does it say? That the message is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. A lot of what Paul is um, doing here and concluding in Romans 10 about, about the tragic state of Israel, it's coming out of how he's understanding what's going on here in Deuteronomy 30, and specifically verses 12 to 14. Those are the ones that he, that he cites, that he quotes here. Um, but, but before we just dive into the very end of the Pentateuch, right? Uh, which if you don't know, Pentateuch is just a fancy word for the first five books of the Bible. Uh, it's kind of meant to speak to the fact that it's better understood as one, as one complete book. Um, but before we just jump in at the very end here in Deuteronomy 30, let's just, let's just back up and make a few comments about the context of what's going on there. Um, part of what we have to understand about, about biblical narrative is that the authors of biblical narrative, they're not, just, they're not just telling us about things that have happened. Okay? They're not writing from the perspective of someone who uh, is just sort of going through the events that are happening and they're, they're writing it down, they're recording the details of the events so that we can read about it later and see what happened. Uh, that's not what's happening. Okay? They write from a perspective that lives outside of the story. And because that's the case, they don't just tell us what happens. They're also able to interpret those events for us. And they're also able to give us their perspective on those events and tell us what we should think and do in light of that. We could think about it um, like, the, like the voiceover in a musical or a movie. You, you, the story's unfolding and then there's this person speaking to you and explaining to you what's happening in the background while you're watching it all unfold, right? Uh, hopefully in Morgan Freeman's voice, but that's neither here nor there. And the reason that the voiceover can do that is because his perspective lives outside the actual story that's being told that you're watching. He's not in the story. He's outside the story, narrating what's happening. And this feature of the story, this perspective that's given, it, it's so important because that voice that you hear not only has knowledge that the characters in the story don't have, he has knowledge that we don't have as well. He has knowledge of what the characters are thinking, what their emotions are. He's telling us all these little things that we need to, to really understand, and, and he also has the right perspective on all of it. And so he not only tells you what's happening, he helps, he helps guide what you think about it as well. And this is exactly how the biblical authors work. They not only tell us what happened, the sequence of events, the history, they also interpret and explain it for us. And they tell us what we should think about it. 
And so when we come to the end of the Pentateuch here, and we see Moses begin retelling a lot of the history of Israel that he's already told here in Deuteronomy, we're not just looking to fill in parts of the story that we might have missed the first time. We're primarily concerned with what the author thinks about everything that has happened and what he thinks should be done about it. And that's exactly what he gives us. But what's so unique and profound about the end of Deuteronomy, what we're, what we're about to look at, Deuteronomy 30, and, and the end of the Pentateuch, is, is not only is Moses, the author, giving his perspective on the things he's writing about, but this is, this is like the big uh, end reveal, right? Where, where it's all pulled together and the whole point of the story is explained and made clear. If we could keep this idea of like the, the voiceover going and what that does, um, we could think about this specifically as maybe like how it works in a Sherlock Holmes movie or something, if you've ever, if you've ever seen one of those, uh, where there's been this, this huge mystery throughout and then at the very end, Sherlock Holmes, his voice comes on, right? And it, it begins replaying specific scenes in the movie that we've already seen, but now you're watching it with him talking over it, explaining what's happened because he's solved all of it, and he has the perspective now to be able to do that. He's figured it out. Now he's, he's walking us back through all the important moments and telling us what we might have missed to make sure that we get it the same way he does before, before the movie's over. That's what Moses does here at the end of Deuteronomy. And this is where Paul goes to answer our question, where can we find the righteousness we need to be saved? And so when we go there, we see that after everything he's written about, creation, the fall, the flood, the Abrahamic covenant, Joseph, the Exodus, the Sinai covenant, the failure of the Sinai covenant, the wilderness, everything he's written about, the conclusion (laughs) that he emphasizes here at the end of the book, hear me, what he explains is the need for the people to keep and cling to the message of the book that he has written and not try to keep the actual law itself. Listen to the book, not the law. You find righteousness in keeping the message of the book and what it tells you to do. Why is this significant? Well, because the message of the book, it's very different from the message of the law itself. What the book requires of you is very different from what the law requires. And this is fundamentally what Israel has missed. They've pursued righteousness through the law and not through following the message of the book that preaches the need for Christ, i.e. the gospel. (laughs) The law and the Sinai covenant simply tells you that if if you keep the law, you'll experience blessing. But the voiceover that we receive in the text tells us something much different because he sees that that is not possible that it will never happen. And so the message he conveys in his book is not to trust in keeping the law. That cannot and will not save you. The message he conveys and how he tells the story is actually to trust in the promises that God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And that by having the faith that Abraham had, you will be found to have kept the law in the eyes of God. This is the same thing Paul has been preaching, ironically enough. Some of you can sense my sarcasm there. Have faith like Abraham. Be credited with righteousness like Abraham was. That's Romans 4. It's one thing to see it in Romans 4, but it's another to see it in the Pentateuch itself. And so let's let's just do this thing really quick, all right? It's worth spending some time on, and it's important because this is really the foundation that Paul is standing on to say everything he's saying. How does the book of the Pentateuch specifically preach that you don't keep the law by doing the works of the law, 
but that you keep the law by your faith. So much so that Moses, he has to emphasize that here at the end of, at the end of his book, to listen to the message of the book, not the law. One way, just, just real quick, looking at Abraham. In Genesis 15, 6, you'll remember it says, Abraham believes and is counted righteous. Then a few chapters later in Genesis 26, 5, God says, Abraham, listen to my voice and kept my mandate, my commands, my statutes, and my instruction. This is all the same language that's used to describe the law later in the book when it comes down. But the question here, of course, is how could Abraham have kept the law when at that point the law had not been given? The law didn't come until Sinai, long after Abraham was dead and gone. And so how could he have kept it? And the answer is, by virtue of his faith. The point then of the story is that Abraham is the programmatic figure for the person reading the Pentateuch and asking the question, how can one be righteous? And what he shows us is that the only way to keep the law and be counted as righteous in the sight of God is not by trying to obtain your own righteousness through keeping the law. It's actually by believing in the Messiah just like Abraham did. Now if this is the message of the book, that the way to be righteous and, be, and keep the law is, is by faith in the Messiah, then take this and come back to our text that Paul's using in Deuteronomy 30 because this is what he's talking about, right? It's the message of the book. And this is the point he's making where this all comes together. This is the big reveal, okay? The curtain's coming back. Sherlock Holmes is about to pull this thing together for us. We're going to connect the dots and make it nice and pretty before we leave here. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 14, these are the, these are the verses that, that Paul quotes. What he's talking about, it's the message that is very near to you. Message of the book. And the one command he's giving them to follow here, by which they can, they can finally receive the fulfillment of God's promises, everything he's promised them, the way they receive it, is follow this one command, and that is to keep the message of the book. And what he says about that message is this, verse 12. It's not in heaven so that you have to ask, who will go up to heaven, get it for us, and proclaim it to us so that we may follow it. This is a clear allusion to Moses going up on the mountain to speak to God, God giving him the law, and Moses bringing it back down to the people. Verse 13, And it is not across the sea, so that you have to ask, Who will cross the sea, get it for us, and proclaim it to us so that we may follow it? Again, a clear allusion to Moses taking them across the Red Sea, which was intended to, to result in them worshiping God, but because of their unbelief, they received the law instead. And so don't say about the message, who is going to cross the sea to get it for us? And who is going to go up on the mountain to get it for us? Because that was the law. And the whole point is this, don't confuse the message of the book as if it were the same as the message of the law. <laughs> in other words, what you need is righteousness. And the only way to get that is by trusting in Christ. And the only place you find that message is not through the law. It's through the gospel message of the Bible. Don't confuse the two. Don't read the book and only see it as the law. The book is something much different and it's saying something much different. The two are not the same. And once we understand that and we come back to Paul in Romans 10, we see that this distinction between the law and the actual message of the Bible is exactly what the righteousness of faith speaks like. It understands the difference. 
it says the message is not far off. You don't need someone to go up and bring it down for you because that was the law. And you don't need someone to go across the sea and get it for you either because that was also the law. The message is near to you. How? Because it's in a book that's been written for you. (laughs) And not only that, now in Romans 10, the one that it all testifies about has actually already come down and done what it's anticipated. When the self-righteousness of the law speaks, it gives you the message of the Sinai covenant. You live by working. When the righteousness that comes through faith speaks, it first says, I understand the difference between the law and the Bible. The law preaches salvation by works, but I read the Bible carefully, and I see it preaches a different message, keeping the law through faith in the one who's kept it for me. Friends, (laughs) please hear me. This distinction between the Bible and the law, it's so important. It's so important. And please hear me that as we read about the tragedy of the Jews being cut off from the Messiah, the ultimate fulfillment of everything that had been promised to them, that at the root of that was a failure to see the exact thing that we're talking about. The Jews have missed the fact that the Bible, it's not simply a law book. Rather, it's a book that has laws in it, but all the while it's preaching to them the need for faith in Christ. Paul's clear the Jews understood what they needed. They needed righteousness. They had great zeal for God, but they misunderstood how righteousness is found because all they saw in the Bible was a moral handbook telling them what to do. Even though they had great zeal for God, their their zeal was not according to knowledge because they didn't understand it. The very people the Bible had been, had been passed down through, the group of people with the religious, religious elites who literally memorized the scriptures, <laughs> they could recite the words to you on, on the spot, had completely missed what it was saying. And I just hope that the, the, the tragedy of this is not lost on us this morning as we, we live in a church culture and also in a community that as we know, is extremely driven by legalism and by rule-keeping. How terrifying it is to consider that you could be that familiar with the pages of Scripture, but that blind to what it's saying at the very same time. I hope it's not lost on us that we're, that we're just as guilty of this every moment that we approach God and His Word as if its main objective were Morality. <laughs> Man, I've grown up in church all of my life. I went to a Christian university. I live here now, and I've also seen this in my, in my own heart, if I'm honest. And I can tell you, this tragic state of affairs, it did not die with the first century Jews. It's very much alive today. And just as prevalent in some places, maybe. And I've been there. I've, I've looked at my Bible, and I've, I've not been able to see anything in it other than the right things to do and the wrong things to do. I've had people open it up in front of me (laughs) and have nothing to say about it other than do this and don't do that. And the reason that that happens is that people are still falling into the same trap that the Jews did. 
they're reading the Bible as if it were, if, if it were a, a moral handbook for them and not a book telling them about the vanity of our attempts at self-righteousness and preaching to us the need for faith in Christ. Left to our own capacity, the only, the only thing that we have is a self-righteousness that, that is ineffective and it does not save. And that's all that the law, even, even in its perfect morality, that's all it has to offer. Completely ineffective. But the Bible preaches grace and the righteousness of Christ through faith, which is our greatest need. And Paul tells us that the place we find that is through the message of the gospel and the scriptures, not the law. But he also tells us how we can receive it by believing the message of this book and confessing it with your lips. Reading in verses 8 and 9, this is the message of faith we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. Uh, contrary to the law which tells you uh, to do all the works that are laid out in it, the Bible tells you to simply believe it and confess it. And it also gives you the specific content that you are to believe and confess, which is the person and work of Christ, who he is and what God has done through him. There's, there's two aspects going on here and a few connections to make. The first thing that Paul says we're to do is, is confess who Christ is. It's not just that we confess something about God, that he exists, he's all-powerful, anything like that. Even, even the Jews uh, do that, and they actually confess a lot of correct things we know. Uh, but we have to make the right confession, right? There's a specific content of that confession that's important for salvation. This relates back to what he's already unpacked, which is how the righteousness from the law speaks versus how the righteousness from faith speaks. We need righteousness, and we need the righteousness that comes from faith in the gospel, not the law. And so we need to speak like, make the same confession as the righteousness from faith, not the one from the law. And the question, of course, is which confession are you going to make? In verse 5, the righteousness from the law says, the one who does these things live by them. Again, that's a direct quotation of Leviticus 18. It's just talking about the works of the law. The righteousness from the law that the Israel's, Israelites have, have sought after, it says life actually can be had by doing the works of the law. And this is completely contrary to how Paul has argued, by the way. You'll remember in Romans 1, 17, he quotes Habakkuk 2 and, and says that the righteous shall live not by works, but by faith. And that's really the programmatic statement of salvation for the book of Romans. Instead, what we're to confess and say is the same thing that the righteousness from faith says. And that's the language he uses to begin quoting out of Deuteronomy 30. Again, the righteousness from faith speaks like this. And we demonstrated how, how tragic that failure to distinguish between the message of the law and the message of the gospel as found in Scripture is. But also at the heart of this is not just a distinction uh, between two messages. Also at the heart of this is the recognition of who Christ is. Right. A part of that confession here is that, is that he's Lord, that he is who he's promised to be. And not only is he Lord, but he, he's Lord of all, verse 12 says. This is part of the logic of why salvation, it's not limited to the Jews, even though the promises came through then, but it's available to Jew and Gentile. 
to all who call upon him. He's, he's Lord over everyone and everything. Part of that confession is that he's also the Messiah, the Christ. And as such, he is the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe. That's in verse 4. This word end here, it literally means uh, the, the, the destination of the law, the culmination of the law. He's, he's the goal of the entire thing. That's the point all along. The self-righteousness through the law, it fails, it fails to see that. It sees morality as the end of the law. Perfect adherence to, to all that it says. The righteousness that comes through faith, the right confession, though, recognizes that the end of the law is not perfect obedience. It's Christ himself. He is the fulfillment of the law for all those who would trust in him, just like Abraham did. And so to speak about righteousness coming through the law, it would be to act as if he had not already come down and done what he was promised to do. You understand that? That would be to, to bring Christ down from heaven, as he says in verse 6. Or to bring him back up from the dead, as he says in verse 7. These are the things that Christ has done to fulfill that great hope of the gospel that he, that he would die for the sins of the world, but rise from the dead and ascend to the Father as that perfect sacrifice. And then to go resort to the law would be to say that Christ has not actually done those things. But Christ has come down. Christ did die on the Christ. Christ really was risen again. And the fact that this has happened, it makes Christ God's final stamp of approval on everything that his word says and testifies to. If God's word were, were put to trial, is it true or is it not true? Christ is the undeniable piece of evidence. He's, he's the, the smoking gun, if you will, that God brings to court to prove without a shadow of a doubt everything his word says is true. This idea of, of speaking of these things in the right way, speaking the way that true righteousness by faith speaks like, it, it's, not, it's not just instructive for us in, in one single moment that we can be saved in. That's true, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't end there. We all know that much of the Christian life is lived with these competing voices, right? The voice of the law and self-righteousness and the voice of faith and the righteousness of Christ. We typically think about people who uh, spend a lot of time like just talking to themselves or having conversations with uh, nobody as being a little bit crazy, right? Uh, like Dory and Finding Nemo, you guys remember her? Something's not, not quite right up there. She's got a few loose bolts jiggling around up there somewhere. Well, we've all got a little crazy in us in that regard because we all hear the voice of the law all the time, and it can be loud. At least it is for me. We talk back with it often, whether it's about a particular battle with a particular sin or whether it's guilt of ways we feel like we've failed specific people in our lives. You hear that loud voice of the law speaking to you about whatever those things are, condemning you, reminding you of all the ways you've fallen short. And the danger is not so much that that happens because we, we know that it will the danger is that we would listen to it, believe the conclusions that it makes, and even attribute it to God as if that's what he would have of you. More righteousness of your own. As if that's what his word would say to you. And in so doing, in all those, all those little moments we have, we make the exact same mistake 
the unbelieving Jews have made. By mistakenly equating the voice of the law with the voice of God in his word. The muscle that we have to flex is instead speaking like the righteousness that comes through faith. That's part of what Christian maturity looks like. It's being able to, to speak the gospel to ourselves. Which, by the way, doesn't deny our sin. It doesn't deny our shortcomings. It doesn't pretend that there's some nicer, gentler assessment of us out there somewhere to be made. But it also doesn't just leave us there. And it provides us with an actual way out. An effective way out. The law is never enough to cure you. It's not what you need. But the gospel tells you that your, your greatest need is not... It's not just victory over that particular sin at a particular moment or, or more patience with your family or self-control and anger or whatever, whatever that thing is. It tells you that your greatest need, your greatest need is God himself. It's the righteousness that God requires and that the only way to be righteous is to set aside every bit of your striving and simply trust in him to provide it for you. That there is grace and mercy in Christ that you can freely have if you just believe in him. And this leads right into the second part of the formula that Paul lays out as we begin wrapping up this morning. We have to confess what the Bible says about Jesus is true, that he is who the Bible says he is. But we also have to believe that the content of the gospel is true. The right confession at first requires the right beliefs. This belief of the heart that it talks about, it is the, the great fulfillment of Deuteronomy 30, in a lot of ways the hope of the, the entire Old Testament, right? It's that the heart could believe, not keep the law, that the heart could first believe in God's promises through his son. Remember in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, the entire hope of Israel actually being able to love God and live long in that land, the promised land, is predicated on the fact that God will circumcise the heart so their deepest problem of disbelief can be overcome. Everything hinges on this specifically, the choice that they have between life and death or prosperity and adversity, blessings or curses. Are they going to live in that land that God promised or be exiled out of that land? Life with God or life in separation from God? The righteousness of God, what is actually enough to save you, it all hinges upon whether or not they love God and trust his word. And part of what we can't miss this morning especially on the heels of, 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 of Romans 9 even, and these, these deep, challenging truths about God's purposes and election and the priority of his glory in all things, what we can't miss here is the complete simplicity of what our response should be to all of it. And not only all of that, but the complete simplicity of what the gospel asks of us compared to the complexity of the law's requirements on us. There are, there are endless philosophical questions you can ask about the ways of God, things we'll never understand, and there are pages and pages and pages of laws to be followed, but the response that God asks of us to all of that is incredibly simple. <laughs> As Moses said in Deuteronomy 30, there's one command that this book gives you, and it's to love God the way that Abraham did. It's been brought near to you, it's in your heart and it's, it's on your lips. Trust in his promises. Listen to his word and believe what it says. And that, that's it. <laughs> that's all it takes. Everyone who does that will be with God forever.
And so as Nate comes back up to close, the question for all of us this morning is will we do that? Will we continue to call on the name of the Lord, trusting him to save us? Whether that's for the unbeliever who might be considering this for the very, the very first time, we continue to disregard the righteousness of God who saves sinners by faith? Or will you come to him in humility and faith, trusting him to, to provide you with your greatest need? Or whether that's for the believer who's been walking with Jesus for several decades, will you resort back to a self-righteousness that trusts in self more than in the righteousness of Christ? The message is near. It's on your mouth. It's in your heart. So believe in your heart and confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead so you can be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we, again, just thank you for your grace to us, Lord. We thank you that despite all of our inadequacies, our shortcomings, God, our complete, complete, utter inability to muster up anything that would be worthy of of being with God, Lord, that you have, in your sovereign will, you've, you've sent your son to do it for us. That Jesus really did die for our sins. He really did defeat it for us. And that by simply trusting in him, Lord, we can, we can inherit all the blessings of Christ, all your promises. And God, not only that, we thank you that you've, you've given us a book that clearly testifies to this. A book that, that right now we can go to, we can read, and we can, we can have access to you through it. That we see the complete simplicity, Lord, the comfort, the ease of the gospel in light of the the perfect standard of the law. God, we confess that even as your people we're prone to wander, Lord, we're prone to to fall back into ways of self-righteousness. We ask that by your spirit you you would kill all that in us. You would continue to drive us into deeper and deeper dependence and faith and trust in you, Lord, and that we would live by faith, not by sight. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.